It is Friday, the 8th of February 2019. My name is Jeremy Medlin and welcome to episode 26 of the Stock Market Movers podcast. Just a quick reminder that nothing that I say today should be considered financial advice. And if you're looking for financial advice, I recommend that you speak to an authorised financial advisor. And just quickly before we kick off, each week I send out notifications of the new podcast via email. If you're looking, if you would like to receive email notifications, head along to the website www.stockmarketmovers.co.nz and you can enter your email address through the form. So it was a pretty quiet week on the NZX, been a holiday. So I'm going to spend some time talking about the difference between a limit and a market order, so a bit of education for those that might be newer investors or those that have never understood the difference before, and I know there's plenty of people out there. I'll also talk about another book that I've read recently, another good book review, and I'll talk about the big news from an in- for the week from the NZX perspective, which would have to be the PushPay update, the Canna South IPO, the New Zealand Medical Marijuana Company, and I'll have a, give a quick mention to our friends at Orion Healthcare, so we'll get straight into it. Being a holiday week, there was obviously a lot less NZX market news that came through the wires, with most companies probably choosing to defer things, which is understandable. The most significant news of the week came from Pushpay, um, a stock that obviously spends most of its time in the United States, so probably less affected by Waitangi Day than others. And it's a stock that we've discussed in detail on the podcast in the past. So they trade on the NZX and on, on the ASX under the ticker code PPH. And in my view, they had a pretty good update. Although the rest of the market didn't seem to agree with me. The stock was down over 6% in Australia, opened higher in New Zealand and, and closed lower. And this is where markets can often be confusing for newcomers. If you had read Pushpay's update in isolation and it was all that you knew about the company, then it would have been difficult not to come to the conclusion that it was a great update. And then you'd look at the stock price and go, hold on, wasn't that good? And Reactions like this can happen for a few reasons. Remember that people are trying to figure out from these updates the future in, in terms of what's going to happen. Um, so they take cues and, and hints and everything like that. So often people pick up on, on subtle red flags in the report that are easy to miss. Little cues that, that everything is, is not quite okay at the company. And there's a famous example of this not too long ago in the United States. Lumber liquidators, I believe they trade over there under the ticker code LL. They casually said in one of the earnings calls that they were going, that they, they were going to be on 60 Minutes. And the the market, or at least some people in the market, figured out what this would likely mean, and, and the stock quickly got slammed. I can't remember exactly how much, 10% or so. And then the week later, when they appeared on 60 Minutes, it turned out to be a, a detailed investigation into their company practices overseas. And, and the stock, over a period of time, ended down up 60 to 80%. And anyway, I'm, I'm digressing a bit, and, and, and there are none of these red flags in Pushpay's report. But I think in, in the case of Pushpay, it was the market expecting better numbers than what the company actually delivered on. So that's the other reason these moves happen is when what the company reports differs from what the market was expecting. And, and that can be both from to the upside and to the downside. So the company can do more than what the market was expecting. The stock is often up. When the company does significantly less, the stock is often down. And that that's essentially what I believe happened there. And, and the numbers were actually good. And so what, what what do you do in that situation? Do you sell with the rest of the market? And that can be tempting, and it's obviously a case-by-case situation. But more often than not, if you have a long-term view, this, this would normally be a mistake. So I, I'm not sure what your view is on Pushpay, but if it was positive over the long term, then you'd, you'd probably be pretty silly to be selling just, just on an update like this. But that's just my view. Anyway, so the headline of the report read, Pushpay's revenue up 35.2%. Gross margin percentage improvement 
EBITDA F and cash flow positive. So notice a, a bit of a change in language here. The company has moved up and is now talking about EBITDA F. And this shows, I guess, a movement in, in gears for the company. And I guess the next step they'll be talking about is net profit. So let's, let's see the development there. So let's, let's run through the numbers. So total revenue increased to US 27.7 million to 31st of December 2018. That was an increase of just over 35% over the prior reporting period. And gross, there was a gross margin increase to 60%. They expect that for the full year of March 2019. I think that was ahead of its target. And that's an increase from about 55% from the last year. So that shows that they're getting some operating leverage and scale in their business model, which is good to see. And they're pretty confident that they'll be cash flow positive going forward, which is a, a, obviously a... a that's a good thing. Um, so impressively for me, they increased the average revenue per customer to, to 1,548 US dollars. That's compared to 1,233 US dollars over the prior prior year. And that was, obviously this is this is the busiest part of the year, this reporting period, but still to see an increase of 25.6%, that suggests that they're starting to get traction by targeting their larger institutions. You'd expect with large institutions that the average revenue per customer is will be higher, and, and that's exactly what seems to be happening, which is positive. So total customers increased 5.5% to 7,585. It's interesting, interesting to find out actually how many of those customers are active out of the 7,500. 585, maybe they all are. Um, it would be interesting to see the definitions there. Um, anyway, so these, these numbers show that most of the revenue growth has been driven from the existing client base. So if the existing total revenue was 35.2% increase um, and the average revenue per customer increased 25.6%. So that shows that most of, of the revenue increase has been driven by their current customer base. So maybe that's that was some cause for the market to, to pause yesterday in terms of Maybe it's worried about how how quickly the company can penetrate into those larger churches, um, but you know I still think these numbers are pretty good. So, annualized processing volume increased to five point one billion. I'll need to look into the definitions here. I've just clicked that annualizing processing volume might have a completely different meaning to just processing volume. Um, so I'll have to have a, a look later on. Um, they highlighted some nice developments in their, well, that's obviously impressive growth, by the way. We were talking about $3 billion not too long ago. Um, they highlighted some nice developments in their platform in the report, which is worth reading. I won't go through them here. It's always important that they continue to improve their product, as this is how you, you, you build a competitive advantage in anything over the long term. And it looks like they're going to report an accounting net profit in March. So they didn't offer much in the way of guidance and they only sort of reiterated what they've said in the past in terms of getting to 1 billion US dollars of revenue when they reach a, a certain penetration in the market and their medium term goal of being US 10 billion dollars in processing volume. Based on their run rate, it, it seems to be that that medium goal might happen in this calendar year, although we'll certainly find out more later on. They're also going to be abandoning their quarterly report, and I think this has been flagged in the past. I personally think that's a good thing. I don't necessarily see the, the need for it. They're quite good at their disclosures, so doing it twice a year will be absolutely fine. Um, yes, yeah, so that's about it for Pushpay. I think a, a good update, obviously a negative market reaction, but I don't think it should affect your long-term view on the stock, whether your long-term view is negative or, or positive. So the other interesting piece of news during the week was from Canna South, 
and that's turning into New Zealand's marijuana play. And there wasn't much much about this, just a couple of quick articles and stuff and, and, and wherever else I read it. So I won't talk too much about it, but it looks like they've secured new licenses to import, cultivate and research medical cannabis. So this is obviously an important step for a company as, as I believe they're pre-revenue right now. So in order to get to post-revenue, you, you think they'd need to, to get these stages done. Um, they're targeting a, a IPO for later in the year and... I don't know. We, we haven't had any IPOs for a while, so it's, it's obviously one to look forward to. Obviously, a, a marijuana company that's pre-revenue will likely be at the higher risk end of the spectrum, and it'll be interesting to see when some of the prospectuses and, and whatnot come out, what they intend to do with the money they raise. But just purely judging by how many people listen to my podcast when I mention marijuana stocks, I imagine it will be reasonably well supported by the punters that want to bet on the industry. Um, so I'm starting to get negative, so I'll, I'll shut up. But it's great to see another IPO in, in New Zealand, that's for sure. I thought it would be worth taking some time to explain to some of you who may not understand the different types of orders you can place when buying shares in the stock market. And typically, you know, on some of the international platforms, there's dozens of different types of orders that may be more suitable to high frequency traders or different types of trading techniques and everything like that. But in, in general, for most of us, there are two main types of orders that we use when buying shares on, on the stock market. And the first is a market order and the second is a limit order. So I'll quickly explain market order. That's when you're giving your broker the instruction to buy the shares at the next available price on the market. So that's buy whatever shares at whoever's selling them at the market at that time. And the advantage of that order is that you're gonna get filled on your shares straight away. So it means you're gonna get, you're gonna get the price that's there right now and you're gonna get filled on your shares. The disadvantage of that, and especially in, in New Zealand and lots of these smaller companies that don't trade that 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 much in the day, it means that you might get a, a fill in your order that is you know not not really satisfactory compared to what you want to pay. So an example might be the a stock that's trading at that's got buyers at 10 cents a share and sellers at 13 cents a share. That's a 30% spread between the buyers and the sellers. And if you hit a market order on that one, it means that you're gonna be buying the shares at 13 cents per share. Now, that's fine if, if you had a view on the stock and you just wanted to buy the shares, you didn't want to place a different order to wait for your stock. If you just wanted the stock right now because you thought something was gonna happen or you needed the shares, straight away that's fine but it's not fine for most of us that doesn't want to pay that 30% spread or that difference in the price so that's the disadvantage of market orders and the advantage as I said is that you get your stock straight away and there's no real mucking mucking around with things and typically I would say that I've I, I use market orders from time to time I'm not so much in, in New Zealand to be honest um just just because I just because of the maybe some of the thinness and some of the liquidity on some of the stocks means that I've you know I've I've had terrible fills in the past when I've placed market orders. So typically I, I stay away from them in New Zealand. But you know, you're gonna be fine when you're placing it, or you're probably gonna be fine when you're placing it on 
stocks like you know your A two milks, your Fisher and Pikes, your Air New Zealand stocks that they're, they're, they're generally pretty liquid and have quite an active market for their shares. You know, you're not necessarily going to be fine when you're placing it on your Plexus, on your New Zealand King Salmons, and some of the smaller stocks that have a, a, a little bit less liquidity. So that that's when I'd I'd use market orders, and when I wouldn't use market orders, I, I know direct broking, for example. They, they they don't say market order on their site. They say current sale price of. So you place place your order and to buy at the current sale price, whatever that is. Um, there is a lot of talk overseas at, at the moment. I don't think it happens in New Zealand. Another risk with market orders is that you might not necessarily get the fill on the screen. And that is, say you put a an, an order through to the market. A high frequency trading algorithm out there recognizes it's a market order and gives you and beats your order to the market and, and gives you a slightly worse price while simultaneously doing the opposite to, to what you're doing to make a, a, a risk free spread on the trade so just being faster and that does happen um, and certainly if there's lots of people placing market orders at once the markets can move quite quickly um, so it's just something to, to be be aware of. Anytime you do anything in the stock market, there's there's pros and cons to what you're doing, and there's certainly pros and cons to market order. So the next type of order you can place is a limit order. So that's when you're saying, I don't want to buy the shares for any more than the price that you set or the limit that you set on the stock. So if you just using New Zealand King Salmon as an example, the, the quote I've got on the screen right now is buy at $2.10 and sell at $2.12. So you might say, okay, I don't want to buy New Zealand King Salmon for any more than $2. So you place a limit order to buy at $2 per share. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that you'll get filled. And in fact, if you place it $2 per share and it's trading at $2.10 per share, chances are that you're not going to get filled. So what your order will do is it will sit there and market at $2 per share until someone is prepared to sell the stock to you at $2 per share. So the advantage of that is that you don't, you never pay more than what you specify in the order. So you never pay more than your $2 per share. The obvious disadvantage is that you may not end up buying the shares. Um, and you certainly see some limit orders that have been sitting there on market for a long time, just not doing anything. So when you place a limit order, and especially if you're placing it quite far out of the money like that, it's quite important to specify the the expiration date on the order. And, and that's quite simple. So you might say until it's cancelled. So a good till cancelled order. And that means that the order will stay, stay in the market until you decide to go and cancel the order. Um, or you might say to the end of the day, or you might say to a specific date, you might say, I just want to keep my order on the market for a couple of weeks. Um, so yeah, that, those are the, the, the two different types of orders. Um, I'd say most, a, a lot of New Zealand stocks, particularly the smallest one, smaller ones, I, I'd normally use limit orders, even when I want to buy the shares straight away, say with that New Zealand King Salmon example, sell it at, at $2.12. I'd probably just place, place my buy limit at, at $2.12 just to get the stock, but not pay more than $2.12. You can always amend upwards later. Um, but market orders certainly have their place for for situations where the, the stock's quite liquid. Just as an example, typically in the United States, when I'm buying shares, I, I, I just tend to do market orders, particularly on the bigger ones. Um, but limit orders is, is what I use in New Zealand. There are some variations of of those types of orders as well. Um, 
and I'll, I'll, I'll quickly run through those. So one example is, a, is a, you hear people placing stop orders. Um, so a stop order, I, I, I personally don't use them, but um, and I'm not sure how easy it is to do through New Zealand brokers, but since a lot of people talk about them, I'll, I'll mention them. So a stop order would be, say for this New Zealand King Salmon example, you might buy the shares at, at $2.12, and you might say, right, I'm going to place a, a stop order at $2. And what happens there is if the stock hits $2 per share, then a market order will be placed to sell your shares once the stock hits $2 per share. So people use that because they say it's a way of of protecting their, their downside. And I do see that to a certain extent, particularly, I guess, if you're operating on leverage or something else, then you've, you've got your theoretical maximum loss there. But I don't know, in this New Zealand King Salmon example, if, if you've if you could sell the shares at $2.10, why would you place an order to sell them at $2? It doesn't really make all that much sense to me, but that's just my view. So the other risk with stop orders is like like they're essentially a market order sitting there waiting in the market. So if the shares hit $2 per share, a market order is triggered. It doesn't necessarily mean that you'll get sold out at $2. In fact, you probably won't, and they call that slippage. So, for example, say you've bought New Zealand King Salmon at $2.12 per share, you've got your stop order at $2 per share, and there's some dreadful news from New Zealand King Salmon overnight, and you wake up in the morning and New Zealand King Salmon has gapped down to $1.50 per share. And what's going to happen there is that the computers are going to recognise that you have a stop order at $2, but it's a market order. So it recognises that the stock's gone through $2 per share, it's at $1.50 per share, it's going to sell you out at the next available price, which is $1.50 per share. And that, I guess that's a dramatic example, but it's essentially what, what happens in real life. And that that's one of the reasons why you had this um, situation in 1987 and other market crashes as well where you get selling upon selling so you get more market orders hit at the same time and, and all of a sudden there's no liquidity and they keep on getting the hit until they can find buyers and that's why sometimes you get quite big market movers, movements because there's, there's selling on top of selling. Same happens with buying as well. What some people do to protect themselves against this is they place a stop limit order. So they'll say in this case the the stop limit the stop will be placed at two dollars per share, but there'll be a limit to sell for no less than one dollar ninety, for example. It's a little bit more complicated of an order. The advantage is that if it gaps down to one dollar fifty per share, then you've got a limit order sitting there in the market at one dollar ninety. Um, so pretty straightforward there. The disadvantage is that if you really wanted to get out of the stock, you, you, you might not actually get out. Uh, so there's like like anything in the market, there's no <laughs> there's no silver bullet, and every I guess it's it's every every action has a a pro and a, a con to it. But generally, that's probably a little bit too complicated. I, I I typically think in terms of market orders or limit orders, and like I said, outside of new in New Zealand and Australia, I only really use limit orders, and in the United States, I would do a market order because it is a bigger market. So one of the things I set out to do this year was read a lot more books, and I'm a reasonable reader anyway, but I set the goal of reading a book per week on average, and I'm not sure why I chose a 
a book per week. I think it was because a friend of mine said he was reading a book per week, so I thought I'd try to replicate that. And it's it's fair to say so far in early February, I've fallen a little bit behind this goal. But one of the books I, I did read this year, and like the one last week, I, I'd recommend it to you guys as listeners to read, is a book called When Genius Failed by... Roger Lowenstein, and it's about the rise and fall of long-term capital management. It's it's an excellent book. It's really well written. Um, it explains, I guess, it's it's quite complex. Say compared to last week's book, there's you know there's probably a little bit to understand in it, but it is excellent. It's well written and it is kept light enough and humorous enough by the author. So. The hint from the title was that it's about long-term capital management. So long-term, if you haven't heard of them, was a hedge fund that was founded in the 1990s and had some of the brightest financial minds in the world, such as John Merriweather, uh, Nobel Prize winners, Myron Scholes and Robert Merton. And they were ridiculously successful at first. I mean, charging big fees, they made 21% in the first year. This is after fees. 43% in the second year and 41% in the third year. And this is on a significant amount of money as well. And they were mainly specialising in complex bond arbitrage strategies that involved profiting from small movements in asset prices through the heavy use of leverage. And I think they were up to 25 times levered at, at one stage. And to me, this this book is really... It, 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 as a reader, you can... I guess you can take the mistakes from others and apply them to yourself and this sort of thing. And it's better to learn from other people's mistakes than your own. And to me, it, it really was a lesson on on leverage and, and the dangers if it's used incorrectly. And these are some of the smartest people in the world. They, they had years of experience in their fields. They had a, a, a large part, if not all, of net, their net worth in the fund. So it's hard to say that their interests weren't aligned with investors and all the resources that, that you could possibly imagine at their disposal. So they, they had everything going for them. And it, it showed that during extreme market events, they, they just couldn't deal with it. So the 1997 Asian financial crisis and the 1998 Russian crisis brought the fund to its knees. It, it lost $4.6 billion in four months. And they were essentially stuck with huge and heavily levered public position. Public is important because it meant that the rest of the Wall Street started trading against them. If you've got a large public position that you can't get out of, you know, people are going to trade trade against you. And they were in illiquid financial assets. So there's nothing wrong with illiquidity, but if, if something's illiquid and you're heavily leveraged, then you're very vulnerable. So it's interesting to note that if they weren't leveraged, all the positions would have been fine. That They, they were decent positions. Um, but the fact is they were heavily levered and it, and it just caught them out. And it, it shows the dangers of leverage that even these very smart people, much smarter than you and I, can get caught up in it. So the consequence of this was that it actually nearly pulled the financial system down. Um, it, it, because of these leveraged products, a lot of them were derivatives, you know, with their, their values derived from somewhere else, they were all interlinked with the rest of the financial system. And a lot of the... The funding for the for this hedge fund was driven by the large big banks in the United States who were clamoring to give them money up until this point. So everything was sort of interwebbed, so to speak. And it only took the intervention of the Federal Reserve and the pulling together of all the big banks to stop it from happening and essentially bailing them out. It wasn't with public money, but it was 
arranged by the Federal Reserve. So they took some flack from that. So the other lesson that you can take away from this is that academic theory is, is not always a substitute for real-life experience in the markets, and, and in general, actually. You know, you always, sometimes you read something in a book, it could be about anything, and the, the models don't perfectly apply to the to the real world. You know, it, it, it could be anything. You know, you, you could figure out something on a spreadsheet that models everything perfectly well, but then when you apply it to the real world, things don't fit perfectly. And you can have all the best models and, and risk management systems, but it, it doesn't sort of stop stop you from extreme events in the markets and anything can happen in the markets and it does happen in the markets sometimes when you're so smart and you think your models are smarter than anyone else you can take risks that someone dumber than you wouldn't consider and it makes you complacent and complacent and, and the markets can be very humbling and, and this is essentially what happened to long-term capital management and i think this book when Genius Failed is an excellent one to read just from entertainment purposes. You'll learn something from it, but it also it's it's certainly a reminder of 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 what can happen in the markets and, and the dangers of leverage. Okay, so I'm almost out of the time. Quickly before I go, it looks like the big players in Orion Healthcare are gonna buy up the rest of the shares that they do not already own. Looks like it will be at the same price as the recent buyback. Shows that sometimes the, the first offer is the best offer. So that recent price is one twenty two four, And I guess that will bring to an end one of the more disappointing NZX stock stories um, since whenever they listed. And I, there's been some rippers. That's not a negative comment. There's been some absolute ripping stock stories since that time. Anyway, so many, many thanks again for listening to the podcast. As a reminder, again, that nothing that I said today should be considered as financial advice. If you're looking to find out more about about the podcast go to www.stockmarketmovers.co.nz or find us and give it a like by searching on facebook make sure also to share with your friends if you want to email me it is jeremy at stockmarketmovers.co.nz once again my name is jeremy medlin and this has been episode 26 of the stock market movers podcast for friday the 8th of february 2019 and we'll see you all again next week